So yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it as we've been doing through our Bible survey, our history of redemption, um, authorship, date, and special considerations, doctrine, things of that nature, and then an outline for um, study. So as always, uh, answering who it was that wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, as we talked about uh, two years ago, uh, the <laughs> many names have been presented as possibilities, and many reasons have been offered for why each of those possibilities would be a good candidate, none of which are entirely convincing. Uh, I'm convinced of an author, uh, but I fail to convince others of the same authorship, and, uh, and that's the way it, I guess it goes. Uh, the most common names that are brought to the table for the authorship of the book, of course, is Paul, uh, Barnabas, Luke, and then Apollos. Okay? Uh, Paul, of course, is brought to the table for many reasons. Uh, he was the first to be recognized as the author by the early fathers, even before the end of the first century, uh, uh, which is, I think, important. Uh, and then uh, what is interesting is the early church was divided into the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And the Western Church, of course, was always a little late in catching up with the Eastern Church because most of the church was happening in the East. And um, so it was an Eastern father that initially recognized Paul uh, as the author, Clement of Rome, and uh, Polycarp, and then uh, Irenaeus and some others. And they actually had to convince the West that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul before they even embraced it as a book of the Bible. And then it wasn't until later that uh, people began to question uh, not the inspiration of the book, but the authorship. And then the, a, a father named Origen, not sure why anybody takes anything seriously from him if you've read any of his works, he was... He was crazy, I think, uh, his views of Scripture. But he said, uh, who's the author of Hebrews? He says, uh, God knows. Uh, and maybe he was right on that particular thing, but much of what Origen said was completely wacky. Um, you can Google him and read some of his very strange things. I do not doubt that he loved Jesus. In fact, he, um, he was um, tortured and murdered for Christ. And he was unbending in his trust in the Lord. But then the. And so, uh, and so was prisoners of war, and mm -hmm. especially the Jewish, six million. Yes. And God himself says in his wealth, recorded in scripture, Old Testament, this is my children. Amen. Uh, so Paul, of course, he's uh, brought to the table because of, um, of the words that are used in the text, his theology, and, uh, and as we see, especially in the book of Romans, is this very systematic reasoning. It's very much in the book of Hebrews. Barnabas, uh, he is sometimes selected because of his, because Barnabas was a Levite. And uh, the book of Hebrews has an emphasis on the Levitical priesthood, its sacrifices, and, and those sorts of things. Luke uh, is thrown out there because of the advanced Greek vocabulary in the book of Hebrews. Uh, he, the book of Hebrews, um, 
as far as Greek literature goes, it, it utilizes um, words that are not super common uh, in anybody's vocabulary. Um, also, Luke is selected because Paul's theology runs throughout, and uh, Luke was definitely influenced by Paul. We know that. Uh, also, at the end of the book, there's this um, a mention of Timothy, and Luke was acquainted with Timothy. Uh, Apollos is the, you, there's other names that come up, but they're not, I don't think they're worth mentioning. Apollos is mentioned primarily because the, the language in the book of Hebrews is extremely eloquent. Um, many scholars say that not only the vocabulary, but the eloquence of the Greek and Hebrews uh, stands at, at the highest level uh, among all ancient Greek literature. And uh, so Apollos, we know that he was well-trained. Um, Corinthians, we know, were impressed with uh, how well he could speak and things like that. And uh, so anyway, um, I think, uh, as I've told you before, most of the evidence fits with Paul, um, but there's some who challenge it. Uh, of course, the letter does not bear Paul's name. All of the other letters of Paul bear his name. Uh, now, there's a lot of scholars have presented reasons for why Paul may have omitted his name, and one of those is because Paul was not very popular in Jewish-majority communities. Okay? And so they believe he might have thought that his name on the docu document may have been a distraction to them. Uh, and then... Okay. Is that true? Some of it, yeah. Some of it. He was a Pharisee. He wasn't a tax collector. Okay. Okay. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to talk to me after service? Sure. Okay. Well, then let me talk during the service. Thank you. Um, so some believe that his name would be a distraction to them, okay? And um, uh, the style and some of the emphasis uh, is, is not necessarily typical of Paul, but neither is it impossible, okay? Paul, we know, was, he was very educated. He was a capable man. Um, yeah, some interesting things. Um, When people uh, present other authors, most are very willing to say that if Paul was not, then they were very much persuaded by Paul, influenced by Paul. Because there's, there's entire phrases that are only found in Paul's letters. Uh, the, the ending of the letter is uniquely Paul's uh, that we see in his other letters. So there's good reason to believe that it was him. If it wasn't him, the person that wrote it was very likely one of his missionary companions. Um, then as far as external evidence uh, for the authorship, um, mentioned a little bit, um, I mentioned Irenaeus, uh, Polycarp, early father of the church, Tertullian, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, Eusebius, Jerome, even Augustine, uh, all important people from the church. Accepted letter. 
Look at the date real quick. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to give a date exactly for when the book of Hebrews was written, but there's a few semi-timestamps in there, and most of us uh, would put it somewhere between 64 and 69 AD. I wish we could narrow it down to uh, something a little tighter. We just can't. Um, the, within the letter, there's um, every indication that the Jewish temple was still standing. Okay? Because the author talks about um, the, uh, an imminent event, an uh, event that could come suddenly and take away everything that was Jewish. Talking about the, the temple. No, sir? Sir? Sir, uh, will, will you talk to me after the service? Well, we can talk with a few of us after service. Sir, if you speak again, you will need to leave. Um, eight, chapter 8, 4 talks about this. Chapter 9, 9. And then chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, I'll talk about the uh, the dissolving of things. And, uh, and we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So 813 talks about the complete dissolving of all of that. All right, special considerations. The book of Hebrews was written to persecuted Jews. Okay? Uh, it was written to a wayward fellowship. And it, the, the fellowship itself, which is always kind of troubling to me, it's not important to the theology of the book, but we do not know where they were. And there's a statement at the end we'll talk about, it's completely unhelpful. So... All right, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, of course, is uh, to Jewish Christians. Uh, and one of the unique things about it is that, or what is probably interesting, is that they were Jewish Christians suffering by the hands of their own people. They were Jews persecuting uh, other Jews. Uh, the circumstances were similar to those in Thessalonica, uh, where the Gentile believers were being persecuted by other Gentiles. Okay? But the difference is, as Paul points out, that the Thessalonians, with persecution, were becoming more faithful. They were becoming more devoted. They were, they were becoming better Christians because of it. But those in the Hebrew fellowship, because of persecution, they were growing weaker. They were being tempted to leave Christianity to abandon Christ and then go back to Judaism. They were willing to forfeit everything in order to be at peace with their own people. And so it's very sad. You know, typically 
Uh, throughout church history, the early fathers believed that the blood of the martyrs was seed, that whenever you killed a, a Christian, uh, 15 more people would get saved and then spread the gospel more. So the more it was persecuted, the more it would spread. Uh, that wasn't true with the Hebrews. And in fact, uh, we're seeing some of the, um, I don't know what we would call it, the Hebrew effect in some of the uh, persecuted churches today. We do not see them uh, being a seed. We do see it in some places. I think we see it with the Coptic Christians in Egypt and Northern Africa. I think we see it with the Chinese, but there are other places where it seems that the church is, is diminishing. And I would like to think that it's just going underground, as it has done in China, but there doesn't even seem to be um, that happening. And so we do not want to forget to pray for our brothers and sisters that are persecuted. So, um, okay, as I said, the location of the audience, uh, some have suggested that these Jews, uh, these Jewish Christians live in Jerusalem, uh, but there are some indications in the text that makes Jerusalem an unlikely candidate, and perhaps anywhere in Israel, because Christianity had more and more become um, kind of an enemy of the state, kind of an anti-Jewish uh, thing. It was at least perceived that way. Uh, we know from the book of Acts that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were poor. They were poor. But the Jewish believers mentioned in this epistle uh, had given generously to others. Generously to others. Uh, the author mentions that in chapter 6, verse 10. And uh, I would say it's possible that they had even gave generously to the church in Jerusalem. Okay, supporting those people. And that would suggest that the audience did not live in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Uh, the passage in Hebrews 13, 24 does not help. The author says, those from Italy greet you. This can mean three things. So whoever the author was, we don't know who he was, so we can't blame him. It can mean the location of the author, the location of the audience, or simply that Italians are from Italy. It says, basically, the brothers from Italy greet you. <laughs> and that's not completely helpful. Um, so, but what's important is, though we don't know where they were from, uh, it might give us some context to uh, the historical context of the book, it does not change any of the theology of the book. So, and that's most important. Doctrine. Um, that's right, you guys do have the whole slide up there. Uh, Jesus is high priest, uh, old covenant made obsolete, and the preeminence and deity of Christ. Now, um, I don't think that the book of Hebrews is, is solely contributing those things, but some of it comes out more emphatically in uh, the book of Hebrews in any place else, okay? Uh, so, for example, uh, though it's implied elsewhere, the book of Hebrews is the only New Testament book that refers to Jesus as our high priest. The only one. Uh, Paul implies this in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus, okay? Um, and if he's the only mediator... He's the priest and the high priest, right? Okay, 
It's also implied in Romans 8.34, where Paul says that Jesus makes intercession for us. Uh, His intercession is based upon his offering, his blood for the saints, which is a priestly thing. But in the book of Hebrews, it's the only place that Jesus is called our high priest, and it says it 11 times at least. Okay? Um, And then, of course, we know there's some unique things about his ordination. It's different than those that were ordained in the priesthood of Aaron, who was the son of Levi. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. Okay? He was called of God, uh, not from Aaron, but from this mysterious figure uh, from Genesis 14, 18, named Melchizedek. Uh, he's an interesting person. He is said to be the, the, the priest of God Most High. He's the king of righteousness who reigned over a place called Salem. The word is peace. It's presumably uh, what later was named Jerusalem, the city of peace. Uh, Another thing that is implied elsewhere but stated clearly in Hebrews is the fact that the old covenant, that is the covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai, um, has been made obsolete through the offering of Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. So the doctrine is implied elsewhere, especially in Paul's letters, but nothing is clear or systematic as, as it is in Hebrews. Paul says things like, and we've been discussing this on Sundays, uh, we're not under the law, Romans 6.14, not under the dominion or jurisdiction of the law, Romans 7.1, we've been delivered from the law, Romans 7.6, we've died to the law, Romans 7.4 and 6, Galatians 3.19. Um, it is interesting though, 1 Corinthians 3.11 and 13, like Hebrews, say that the law is passing away. So another Pauline um, phrase that is used in Hebrews. Uh, Paul says we've been delivered from the bondage of the law, Galatians 5.1. Jesus wiped out the, the law. He calls it the handwriting requirements, having nailed it to the cross, Colossians 2.15. Uh, so there's many uh, references that would indicate that the law has been made obsolete, Uh, that it's no longer uh, having a place of jurisdiction over the people of God. Uh, But it's never stated clearly like Hebrews 8.13 says that it's been made obsolete by the establishment of the new covenant. Of course, when we were in Hebrews chapter 8, we asked the question, uh, what is the covenant uh, that was given at Mount Sinai? And Hebrews 34.28 says that, and the old covenant uh, that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai is the Ten Commandments. And everything else is under and governed by all of that. So, uh, Hebrews 34, 28. Huh? Oh. No, I'm sorry, Exodus. Yeah. I'm still riled up. Can't think straight. Oh, thanks. The uh, former combat arms in me was coming out, and I was suppressing him. So, no, clearly something was going on. Sadly, yeah, Exodus thirty-four twenty-eight. So I'm sure it sounds really good on the recording. 
for the podcast. Uh, and then in Hebrews 8, 8 and 9, uh, what is interesting is the author is quoting Jeremiah 31, which is a prophecy uh, about the new covenant coming. Uh, behold, the day is coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's not going to be even like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I had them at Mount Sinai. So it's, it's a new covenant. Um, and the word that, uh, I was going to say Paul, but I don't want to be too presumptuous, that the author uses in uh, Hebrews is, is the idea of novel. It's brand new. Of course, it was spoken of, but its application and, and um, ratification is new. It's completely new. And it's unlike the old. And, you know, um, the law, John says, came by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Something different is happening. And, uh, and then we sang about grace tonight. Truly, we are in the covenant of grace, which is a far more powerful uh, covenant than a covenant of law, as, as we've been learning about. Um, also, something that comes out more emphatically than anywhere is the, the Jesus' preeminence in his deity. And when you go through the epistles, there's a blurb here and a blurb there. Uh, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus chapter 1. Uh, Peter says the same thing. Uh, we have these little statements about the deity of Christ. But in Hebrews chapter 1 especially, it just goes on and on and on. And then it climaxes, I think, and really when it says, and God the Father says to God the Son, your throne, O God. And it's just, it's just coming on really strong. And then, um, because Jesus is Almighty God, he is discussed as being greater than everything else in the book of Hebrews. And so that is the theme of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than. He's preeminent. He's greater than the Old Testament prophets as he begins. He's greater than the angels as he continues in chapter 1. He's greater than Moses, Joshua. He's greater than the Sabbath, every earthly high priest. And the author goes on to say that by his greatness, he offers a better sacrifice, a better hope, a better covenant with better promises, with a better eternal possession, a better eternal country, better resurrection, better things altogether. Yeah. In fact, some of the phrases and statements are very similar to Paul's in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2, Titus 2, and then even 2 Peter 1, where the, the phrases aren't similar. It just shows how much harmony is in uh, the context of the New Testament. That all the writers are in, in perfect harmony when it comes to the identity of Christ. Um, have you ever entered into a conversation with somebody that is saying, where does the New Testament say that Jesus is God? Where does it not? <laughs> it's everywhere, you know. John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, yeah, in the Gospels and the Epistles. It's just everywhere. Everywhere. Um, just not as frequent as the book of Hebrews. And then that quotation... Um, 
from Hebrews, it's Hebrews 1.8 where the father um, calls Jesus God. I'll go ahead and read it to you. Unless you have your Bibles open, you can read along. If you start in verse 6, it says, nice little reference to the second coming. But when he, that's God the Father, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And, the, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And then he calls him Jehovah. And you, Lord, that's Jehovah, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. So now God the Father is calling God the Son the creator. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. At the end of Hebrews it says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He remains. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who inherit salvation? So it's no surprise, by the way, for the angels to hear the Father say that about the one they had worshipped for so long in heaven and until the incarnation, and he came as a redeemer. Cool stuff. I could get trapped in chapter one again, so let's not. Uh, let's look at our outline. Um, so, uh, again, typical of Paul's letters, you have theological or doctrinal, uh, and then you have the practical. And that's exactly how the book of Hebrews uh, rolls. Uh, the doctrinal chapters is the vast majority of the whole book. Uh, people often complain about theology and doctrine, but um, you have to have foundational truth uh, in order to have uh, practical truth. And Paul was definitely into his theology, and so was the author of Hebrews. But yeah, chapter 1 through 10 is, is almost entirely doctrinal with just a few snippets of exhortations. Um, similar, when you get to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 6 has the very first imperative, a command, and then you don't see another one until chapter 12. So there's little snippets of things. And then it's, so basically the first 12 chapters of Romans is all theological, and then the rest is practical. So very much in, um, if Paul didn't write it, whoever did was influenced by Paul, yeah. Um, so here I have doctrinal, practical, and then I have warnings throughout. So we'll look at the warnings at the end, there's six of them. So um, the outline fits nicely with the theme of the book. We already said that Jesus is better than. Uh, there's the outline for it, the prophets, the angels, Moses, Joshua, better than all of the high priests that have ever come before Jesus. The tabernacle is he's, he's better. Uh, better than the old covenant, better than the sacrifices. 
And the practical, I think, is laid out um, simply. Uh, Chapter 11, faith, it's the hall of faith, right? It's just one example of people living by faith after another. Um, Chapter 12 um, the struggle, the, discusses the struggle that we endure for the hope laid before us. Jesus struggled for a hope laid before him. And uh, we struggle for a hope laid before us. In the chapter, there's, um, chapter 12, is Paul uses the imagery of different athletes, okay? the runner, the wrestler, um, this pressing on, this moving forward. Um, yeah, Paul had a lot of use for military stuff and athletics. Um, the author here does as well. Um, chapter 13 uh, is about brotherly love, uh, the love of strangers, the love of persecuted brethren, love of marriage, love of contentment, love of truth, love of Jesus, and love of leadership. Pastors, you're supposed to love me. I love you guys, so. And then the warnings. Uh, Now, what is challenging about the warnings in Hebrews is they're unlike anything else in the New Covenant, anywhere. And what we have is, in the Greek, there are what, what are called conditional clauses, and some of those conditions are what we call fulfilled conditions. So Paul says to the Colossians, if you continue. Well, in the Greek, it's a fulfilled condition. Since you are continuing. But the warnings in Hebrews do not have fulfilled conditions. They are true conditions. And so, because of that, uh, it doesn't matter who the theologian is, everybody wrestles with the warnings in the book of Hebrews. And I do not have them all figured out. Um, I hope I didn't give that impression uh, when we taught through on Sundays. I do not. I wrestle with them. And not in the sense that uh, I struggle with eternal insecurity about my salvation. I just don't fully understand um, the implications of the text. Okay? And um, so anyway... It'll be interesting when we get a divine interpretation of all this stuff one day. So there's the peril of drifting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We give heed to the message that we've heard, okay, the gospel message, the person of Christ. There's the peril of doubting. Um, We know that unbelief is wicked from the book of Exodus uh, and uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. But the author of Hebrews comes out real clear and says that unbelief is just flat out evil. The God who is worthy of being trusted is untrusted. And he calls that an absolute evil. Great dangers in it. The peril of dullness. uh, That is, uh, he talks about, you know, he says, by now you should be teachers, but you've become dull. And he talks about the warnings of that. The peril of departing. Now this, of course, chapter 6 of Hebrews is the one warning that most people struggle with the most. Okay? And uh, the, the theological debates around it are interesting to listen to. Um, and 
I was in a Bible study one time, and a woman had brought this text up, and she said, if you, if you sin, you lose your salvation. I, I said, well, that's, that's a really dangerous interpretation because the text says you can't come back. So I said, who's left in the faith? Because we all sin. And uh, so your traditional Arminianist who believes that you can lose your salvation does not turn to this text because it says you cannot come back if that is indeed what the text means. Uh, there's the peril of despising that is the blood of Christ. Okay? There's the peril of denying that is Jesus' rights over you as Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. Chapter 12, 18 through 29. There were six, right? I got all six there. All right, it's the book of Hebrews. Any questions? What are you smiling about, Jamie? It didn't take two years. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry I asked. Okay, well, let's go ahead and pray. Well, Lord Jesus, um, I don't know who this gentleman um, was, but um, you do. And Lord, I don't know that all that's going on in his heart and mind, but you do. And Lord, I pray that, that you would minister to him. Um, it, if he is apart from you, I pray that Lord, by your spirit that you'd draw him in and that you'd turn the lights on for him and that he could see the truth for what it is. And, um, and Lord, whatever level of sanity um, he does not have, Lord, I pray that you would replace it. And um, yeah, that you'd give him the mind of Christ. And Lord, I thank you for the book of Hebrews. And Lord, as we have spent some time acquainting ourselves with it, I pray that it would always be a source of encouragement, something we can turn back to, to be reminded, Lord, of how great you are, how great of salvation you've provided. As the author of Hebrews says, you have saved us to the uttermost. Thank you, Lord, for that. And uh, so help us to turn here, to be strengthened, to be reminded and uh, to have deeper convictions, Lord. So yeah, Lord, we love you, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.